fourth lecture today, <coughs> we take a look <coughs> at God's law and education. God's law and education. And I'd like to ask for our attention to consider first several verses from Second Timothy. Second Timothy, beginning <coughs> in verse chapter 1 and verse 3, <coughs> where Paul writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Then you'll notice in chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul continues and says to Timothy, Study, keep on studying. God's law and education, keep on studying to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And then in the third chapter, beginning at verse 13, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, 
knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now, our subject at this time is God's law and education. What is education? Well, it is a word derived from the Latin word educare, which means to educate, to educate. And that Latin word educare is itself derived from two other Latin words, ex, out of, and ducere, to lead. So to educate or to educare someone really means to ex ducere them, that is to lead something out of people. In other words, when you educate somebody, you lead out of that person what was in them. For a Christian then, one of the goals of education would be to discover what it is that God has put in a person, the person who needs to be educated, and to develop the technique of leading out of that person the potential that God has put in them. Usually, though, when we speak of education, we also use the word education to include the opposite process of education, that is, to put into people uh, what God uh, formed outside of them, to lead people into the truth, to lead people into new fields of nature or culture or ability and indeed to teach people in such a way that they, by looking outside of themselves, will see and understand what they see and then incorporate those things into their heart. So education is really a two-way traffic. It involves de developing within us what was there and leading it out of us so as to be used uh, to bear an influence on things outside of us. It also involves the opposite process of training people to incorporate inside of them what was there outside of them which they need to be made aware of. Now Christian education of course means uh, to um, lead people uh, into uh, a Christian exposure to nature and to culture uh, and to everything out there and Christian education also means to take out of people what God has put in them which needs development. Well, now that we know what education is and what Christian education is, we now need to ask 
what is the role of God's law, the Ten Commandments, in this process of Christian education. The first observation I'd make from Second uh, Timothy chapter 1 is the statement that Paul makes in verse 3 which we read, I thank God, he writes to Timothy, whom I serve from my forefathers. I serve God from my forefathers. What does he mean? Well, he's not claiming that he, Paul, has always served God his whole life uh, with the same intensity as he was doing at this time that he was writing to Timothy. Clearly, Paul is an old man, older man, by the time he is writing this letter. He seems to be uh, writing these words. <clears throat> from uh, Albania uh, with his final imprisonment and death reasonably imminent before him and as he looks back on his life he realizes there have been different degrees of his own service to Almighty God as a younger man, as a young apostle he had of course been serving God with great vitality but before then uh, he had been persecuting the Christian church uh, with a lot of uh, energy uh, you remember going into homes and dragging Christians out while thinking that he was doing God a good turn by those actions and before then Paul had himself been a little boy and we know that after being a little boy and while becoming a Jewish rabbi before his conversion to Christianity he tells us in Philippians that he had been raised at the feet of Gamaliel and you remember that Gamaliel was a very learned and a wise and relatively tolerant Jewish rabbi who had a lot of clout in the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, as we learn in Acts chapter 5. And so the picture that we have of Paul is that of a person being born uh, in a home in uh, Tarsus, in Cilicia, in what is now the coastal region of southeastern Turkey, and raised by a father and a mother in the ways of Old Testament religion. And here in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers. That, of course, indicates that Paul's parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so forth, all had some kind of a commitment to a a biblical system of education to a biblical life and world view or as Paul tells us elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3 he says I was of the uh, of the tribe of Benjamin a Pharisee of the Pharisees and so we see that Paul is stressing in his letter to Timothy which contains many elements of education as we'll see in a minute that Paul's education had in a sense started before he was born in his ancestors. Now don't let that depress you if even your own parents are not Christian people. But on the other hand, let this be a great encouragement to you if your parents and grandparents were Christians and more importantly, if they have indeed striven to give you a Christian education from the time that you were conceived nine months before you were born. 
because that's where it's at. You see, education, Christian education is really covenantal. There's not too much that you or I can learn about the world in one lifetime if our education only starts when we're, say, three or four years of age, and then if we die and go to heaven when we're 70. You don't learn too much that way, though you learn a great deal more if you set your mind to it during that time frame, uh, and if your parents program you to set your mind to it, starting when you're, say, three, up to the time that you leave uh, their home and do your own thing when you're about 18 or whatever, that would be the case if you were not to be so inclined toward Christian education. But really, to develop an expanding, ever-deepening Christian education, what you really need is to have had Christian parents who were taught the many things they were taught by their grandparents and that they in turn were taught what they, were, what they taught your parents by their parents and so on. Uh, so that each new generation uh, teaches its children even more than what that generation learned from its parents. That is to say that I will endeavor to teach uh, well, I'm a bad example, seeing I don't have Christian parents, but now my children have Christian parents. My children then will learn all they can from me, and I will teach them all that I can at home, and put them in the kind of a school uh, relatively near to where I live, where they can learn as much about God's world from God's perspective as they are able to in the place where I'm raising them while they're under my roof. And I teach them in that way myself and through the agents, the school teachers of the day school that I appoint to teach my children as much as I can. And then when my children leave home and get married and have children of their own, they teach their children all that I have taught my children plus the additional things that God has taught my children that he hasn't taught me. And then the next generation communicate that to their children plus the additional items of education which their immediate teachers, namely their parents and their parents' agents, teach them. So then, our hope in Christian education is that it's not something that we can exhaust in one lifetime, but when we promote Christian education today, we promote it not just for our children, but we promote it today for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren. Because God's promise in his holy law is, I am a merciful God to thousands of generations of those that love me and that keep my commandments. If every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, and it certainly should be in the life of a Christian, then even more so, every subsequent generation with Jesus should be sweeter than the previous generation with Jesus before. In other words, that ten generations from today, or in about 200 years' time, my tenth-generation descendants should have a sweeter walk with the Lord and a happier working condition on this earth than I have today. This is what I should be aiming at uh, in my support of Christian education today. Well now, Paul says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers.
And yet Paul, in writing that, knew more about God than his forefathers had known. Why? Well, because his forefathers, hopefully, had educated their children, Paul's more immediate ancestors, in such a way that they expected their children to know more than they did. Or as David says in Psalm 119, I have more understanding than all of my teachers. The pupil David was saying, I'm so grateful to God that I'm smarter than my teachers were. And I um, am a teacher, a professor of theology, and I tell my students that I'm training to be ministers, I sincerely hope that you will know more about the Bible than I, as your teacher, know and have been able to tell you. And as I send you forth into the churches, or rather as God does so, I hope that your attitude when you get your pulpit will be to educate the people in the pew to know the Bible better than you do, and so forth, so that each generation becomes smarter than the last. And what's said thus far then to illustrate that Christian education is not something that we indulge in for a few years. It is uh, the kind of undertaking which we need to keep at for many generations, constantly broadening and deepening its base. So then, Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 verse 3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers. He then says, I serve God from my forefathers with pure conscience. Now, conscience is the agreement between the person being educated and the actual state of affairs in respect of which he is being educated. You notice the word conscience uh, consists of the prefix con plus the suffix science. Con, science. So conscience means for you yourself inwardly to understand science science means knowledge uh, and for you yourself to understand science and to approve of that science as being right science true science and not science falsely so called you remember in fact if you look at your bible just a few verses uh, earlier at the very end of 1st Timothy chapter 6 let's just look at that 1st Timothy 6 verse 20 O Timothy keep that which has been committed to your trust avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called which some professing have erred concerning the faith grace be with thee Amen we need to beware then of science falsely so called because science falsely so called sets itself in opposition against God and his holy word in other words we need to beware of education that is not Christian education because education which is not Christian education and science which is not a Christian approach to science and philosophy which is not a Christian approach to philosophy is science, is education, is philosophy falsely so called and you'll also record that, recall that when Paul writes to the Colossians he warns them to shun vain philosophy which is not according to Christ notice that Paul is not there asking 
the Colossians to avoid philosophy altogether but he's asking them to shun that philosophy which is not according to Christ and of course in addition to turning away from false philosophy not according to Christ they were obviously required to turn toward true philosophy which is according to Christ and so at the end of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20 when Paul urges Timothy to turn away from science falsely so called he does by implication also urge Timothy to turn toward science which is rightly so called that is true science true knowledge and now Paul says a few verses later in 2 Timothy 1 verse 3 I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure con science with pure science with science rightly so called which I consciously inwardly personally recognize to be science the way it really is therefore the place of conscience is very important in education if you put a covenant child who has been raised in a Christian home into a pagan school which says nothing to him about Christianity or worse which teaches the ungodly doctrine of evolutionism and which uh, tells your covenant child that God did not make the world in six days and all very good uh, but that your child evolved from some monkey-like creature and that man never fell in the Garden of Eden from a state of righteousness into sin uh, but that um, there is a tendency toward good and evil in every man and always has been and in every sub-man and in every ape before the ape developed into the sub-man so that um, big deal why try to be righteous why try to crucify what is evil in human nature um, evil in human nature is really just the other side of what is good and who's to say what is good and who's to say what is bad and you see things are evolving and even morality is evolving and a thing can be wrong today and, and uh, acceptable tomorrow and the other way around adultery could have been wrong 20 years ago and it's acceptable today uh, this sort of thinking is to put a person into an educational environment where if he is a Christian his conscience, his conscience cannot agree with a perspective from which he is being taught however Paul writes to Timothy 2 Timothy 1 verse 3 I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience conscience now Paul goes on to remind Timothy that Timothy too has had a covenantal upbringing for many generations in the way of the Lord just as Paul did he says in verse uh, verse 5 I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice and I am persuaded that in thee also what is Paul writing there he says Timothy I am expecting you to be a faithful Christian true Christian a trusting Christian and says Paul one of the reasons Timothy why I'm expecting this is because your mother Eunice was a faithful woman and so was your grandmother probably your mother's mother Lois you have been raised in a godly home 
for at least these two generations. And I know that your grandmother Lois, from the time that she got pregnant, trained and educated her child that became your mother Eunice in the ways of God and exposed that child, your mother, to the Lord God. And I know that from the time your mother Eunice, as a, a, a believer steeped in the ways of God, got pregnant with you, Timothy, that she trained you in this way. A little later, as we'll see, um, Paul reminded Timothy that from childhood he had been raised with the Holy Scriptures, except that that word childhood there could even be rendered from fetushood, showing at what a very early stage uh, Timothy's training into the ways of the Lord and education had begun. Now then, you say, well, good on old Timothy, good on old Paul, good on their parents. But wait a minute, you're a parent. I'm a parent, right? Your wife becomes pregnant tomorrow. Do you realize that the moment you know that, you have got to increase the amount of worship in your family, and that you've got to start training that little fetus, your child, from the moment that you know that fetus, your child, is there, that you've got to start educating that child, that is, leading that child, not yet born, more and more into the ways of the covenant, into the ways of righteousness, leading that child more and more away from the ways of Satan, exposing that child more and more to the true ways of God. And then when you finally see that child at your child's birth, of course, then the child is brought to holy baptism, has the name of the one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator, the redeemer, the perfecter of all things, affixed, stamped into the forehead of your child, like that tefillah, or Jewish prayer band that was to stamp the Ten Commandments into the, far, into the forehead of uh, the ancient Jews. Because, you see, your child will never bend the knee before him whose name is 666. Your child is a covenant child and will bend the knee from mother's knee in the name of him whose number is 333, Father, Son, and Spirit. And greater is he that is in your child, God the Holy Spirit, than he who will ever live in the children of the world, the Spirit of the Antichrist. And so, from birth, nay more from fetushood, your child and my child as covenant children of God are to have the law of God inducated, put into their hearts, carved into their hearts by the Holy Spirit, and they are then to be educated or to have the spirit-induced product of this brought forth out of their little souls into the world in which God has put them so that whatever they do, whether they eat or drink or breathe or uh, drink her mother's milk or breathe the air or whatever, they do it all exclusively and solely to the glory of our wonderful covenant God more and more each day as they grow up from fetushood to babyhood, from babyhood to childhood, from childhood to youth, from youth to manhood, from manhood to motherhood and fatherhood, and then to grandmotherhood. And so that in their ripe old age, when their hair is turned white, they are still bringing forth fruit 
as grandparents or great-grandparents to the glory of the triune covenant God because the security which our covenant God gives us is not just security from the womb to the tomb it's not social security it's eternal security from all eternity past when we and our children were elected unto all eternity future on the new earth forever and forever however the mere fact that our children are to be born and raised in the covenant in a Christian home and that they are to be given the word of God each day or as the Irish Presbyterians say you raise your child with Irish porridge and with the catechism and you feed your two-year-old baby one spoonful of porridge one spoonful of catechism second spoonful of porridge second spoonful of catechism third spoonful of porridge third spoonful of catechism in other words that your children imbibe religion with their daily food imbibe religion and the spirit of God inhaling him into their lives again as it were with every breath of fresh air into their lungs this is the extent to which we should attempt to train our children from the word go into the ways of God that to them to live is Christ and there is no life for our children other than life in the spirit the spirit of our God and of our Christ and having done our all for our children and this brings me to the third place in the third place we need to challenge our children to make quite sure that they personally believe in God and so Paul having reminded Timothy that Paul's own education started with Paul's forefathers and having gone on to remind Timothy that therefore he Paul was quite sure that Timothy was himself a true believer because Paul did know that Timothy's mother uh, Eunice and grandmother Lois had been believers and had from childhood trained Timothy in the way of the Lord Paul now says to believe at Timothy second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6 therefore I would remind you that you are to keep on stirring up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on of my hands for God has not given us the spirit of fear but the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind you see Paul doesn't say to Timothy ah oh, well I know that you were filled with the Holy Spirit once upon a time either when you were a little fetus or when you were a baby at the time that you were baptized if Timothy was baptized as a baby and we know from God's word that he wasn't and I'll deal with that in a minute as to why not uh, it's not a question of saying oh well you were filled with the spirit when you came to Christ when you were 20 or 21 Timothy and that's all there is to it no as Paul says elsewhere having been filled with the spirit we are to keep on being filled with the spirit more and more each day of our lives until we die and although it's only God of course who can keep on filling us with his spirit and we cannot do it ourselves nevertheless we are to be urged to keep on being filled with the spirit we are to be urged to keep on being stirred up to be filled with the spirit and we are urged 
to keep on stirring up the Spirit of God within us and to keep on stirring up ourselves the gift of God that has been communicated to us. Now, although we cannot produce a work of the Spirit in our lives, we can obey God's directives. And we should try to, because it is precisely when we try to obey the commands of Almighty God that the Spirit is pleased to stir us up. And so I would urge every one of you sitting here now, and urge you in respect of yourselves and in respect of your children to keep on stirring up the gift of God's Spirit which is in you as believers. Don't let it settle down. Don't be complacent. Don't ever become a chosen, frozen Calvinist and say, once saved, always saved. No. There needs to be an agitation of your life until the very day that you die. In the middle of the rest which you have in Christ, there needs to be a certain degree of restlessness, of not being satisfied with what God has achieved in your life up to, my, up to now, with what God has achieved in the life of your children up to now. We are to keep on stirring up ourselves and urging one another to keep on being stirred up and to have the gift of God that is within us, the Holy Ghost, stirring us up constantly. You see, perhaps I can liken a true Christian to a cup of tea with a spoonful of sugar in it, which is sunk to the bottom of the cup. Now, if you just dump some sugar into the tea, but you don't stir it, and you drink the tea or the coffee, you've practically finished drinking the whole cup before you begin to taste the sweetness. What you need to do is to stir and to keep on stirring up the sugar in the coffee in order for that sweetness uh, to permeate the taste of the entire tea or coffee before it's drunk. And Christianity is like that. If you're a Christian, of course you have the Holy Spirit. But it's as if he's sunk down and formed a sludge at the bottom of your life. What is needed is for that spirit and his gifts to be stirred up and for us to keep on stirring him up. It's actually he who moves us to stir him up. So really, it's the spirit that stirs us up to stir him up. But at any rate, the net result when this happens is that a sweetness of quality begins to come throughout our Christian lives and then we become effective people. You'll notice that Paul says in verse 6, uh, I am reminding you that you must keep on stirring up the gift of God which is in you uh, and which was put in you when my hands were laid on you. Now what does Paul mean there? I said a little earlier that I do not believe that Timothy uh, had been baptized uh, as a baby. And of course the reason for saying that is that we're told in the book of Acts that Paul apparently took him and circumcised him uh, when he was an adult. Now it's possible that Timothy could have been baptized as a baby, but it's unlikely. It's unlikely because Timothy was already a young man at the time when Paul first met him in Acts 16. And one wonders uh, whether uh, Timothy would not already then have been older than the period of years that had elapsed since the day of Pentecost. At any rate, he hadn't been uh, circumcised at that time, 
which I think shows uh, that his mother, though a godly woman, had foregone to circumcise him when he was a baby at a time before the Hebrew people <coughs> were led into the New Testament church visible, particularly in those parts of the world outside of Jerusalem, and engrafted into the church visible by Christian baptism. And of course this raises the question as to why Timothy had not been circumcised as a youngster and the reason seems to have been because although his mother was a godly woman, Lois, his father, either a Greek or a Greek-speaking Hebrew, does not seem to have been a believer or if a believer seems to have been a much less dedicated person than his mother was. And so for reasons of compromise then, Timothy's infant circumcision, which is now replaced by infant baptism, had been neglected. The situation was somewhat akin to that in respect of Moses. You remember that Moses married the daughter of Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian, and that uh, the first baby which they had uh, was apparently circumcised in infancy. But when the second baby came along, um, when Moses was on his way back to Egypt and staying at an inn, the time had passed at which that baby should have been circumcised, namely eight days after birth. And we're further told at the end of Exodus chapter 4, where this is recorded, a very instructive passage of God's word, that God was very upset with Moses' neglect to give the sign of the covenant, infant circumcision, to his own second son. And that God was so upset that God began attacking Moses and began killing Moses when he was in the inn. To such an extent that Moses became physically incapable as a result of the attack of God on him of performing the circumcision of his own second uh, male baby that should have been circumcised earlier. At which point Moses' wife who was in the inn with them, realizing what was wrong and why Moses' life was being threatened, knew what to do, and she herself then performed the circumcision, and immediately after she circumcised the uncircumcised second child, God left off threatening to kill Moses, and Moses recovered, showing that it was the uncircumcisedness of the child which was the cause of God attacking Moses. Now that's quite a mouthful. But the implication of that, uh, you see, is that there needs to be a laying on of hands on the covenant child or the covenant descendant. And when infant circumcision was performed, there was a laying on of hands on the person receiving the sign of the covenant. Today when a person is baptized, whether they are baptized as an infant or whether they are baptized as an adult, there is a laying on of hands on that person at baptism, um, regardless of the method through which the baptism is performed. And so I think it's entirely possible that in Second uh, Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul is there referring to the time that he, Paul, first baptized and then secondly, for other reasons, circumcised Timothy. And he says, Timothy, I want to remind you 
that you must keep on stirring up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on of my hands by the putting on of my hands when I laid my hands on you now what's the implication of that to you and me today in terms of Christian education it's simply this that if God gives you and me a child and if our child is baptized in infancy which I believe is the clear teaching of God's word that the infants of believers and of believers alone uh, are to be um, uh, are to be uh, receive baptism then at the time of the laying on of the hands of the preacher in baptism and more particularly at the time of the calling out of the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit over the head of the baptizee the implication is that that baptized person now belongs and has publicly been declared to belong body and soul to the Father, Son and Holy Spirit to have the principles of the Ten Commandments of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit stamped into the forehead, into the brain, into the intellectual education of that baptized person just as clearly as the name of God was applied to their forehead in church where everyone could see it. So if you're a Baptist and you have as, uh, as an adult been immersed, received baptism by immersion, you have given notice to the whole world that the life of sin is behind you from now on you are buried with Christ and associated with him in his death that you've risen with Christ unto a life of dedication and the rest of your life in every thought that you think in every place that you visit is to be dedicated to God and his glory so if that's happened you are committed after your adult immersion to a life of ongoing Christian education for yourself. You really are. And after that, you cannot settle for anything less than Christian education for yourself. But now, if you've been baptized as an infant, or if as a, uh, as a Christian parent, uh, you have seen to it, as indeed you should have done, that your uh, children were brought to baptism in infancy you have similarly announced to the world that at least from that point onward your child is dedicated to King Jesus bears his name on your child's forehead is to be raised in the way of King Jesus is to be trained and educated in the holy law of King Jesus is to be given a Christian education at home until the child becomes of school attending age is then to be given an ongoing Christian education at school is after that to be given a still continuing Christian education in church and at university and in fact is to continue to be educated and when coming to years is himself or herself to seek to be educated under the bonds of the covenant in the name of the triune God in accordance with his holy law for the rest of his or her life it's for this reason then that we find Paul writing to Timothy in 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 study or keep on studying 
keep on being educated keep on applying yourself intellectually study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth but shun profane and vain babblings now then in this ongoing work of Christian education of ongoing study positively we are to become workmen of God who rightly divide the work of God the word divide there is perhaps a little misleading uh, a more accurate translation might be rightly distributing the word of God we are to be trained to become good workmen under God and one of the chief characteristics of our Christian workmanship is to be our ability to distribute the word of God in the right way well now in order for us to distribute what it is that we have to offer the, pu the, the public we've got to have for ourselves what we need to distribute in addition to being able to distribute what it is that we have so we need to ask ourselves do we have the word of God because you and I cannot distribute the word of God to others unless we have it ourselves do you have the word of God are you trying to receive more and more of the word of God do your children have the word of God are you educating them in such a way that your children are more and more receiving the word of God at home at school and in church are your children in the kind of home where they are receiving the word of God are they in the kind of school where they are receiving the word of God are they in the kind of church where they are receiving the word of God we must have the word of God and we must have more and more of the word of God now how are we to get more by study by education by application 2nd Timothy 2 verse 15 study keep on studying to show yourself as one who has been approved by God to show yourself to be a workman who needn't be ashamed of his workmanship to show yourself as being the kind of workman who can rightly distribute the word of God how do you get the word of God by studying and by keeping on studying by causing your children to study by encouraging them to study by setting to them an example of study by studying yourself and by rewarding them for study to study what? the word of God the whole word of God from Genesis to Revelation not just to memorize the whole Bible though that would be very useful but to understand the meaning of the Bible and how it relates to the things that it describes in other words to study and to understand not just Bible texts but the relationship between the Bible text and culture the relationship between the Bible and art the relationship between the Bible and physical science relationship between the Bible and astronomy geology paleontology microbiology all of the other ologies in other words we're talking about Christian education all of that positively what you must learn what I must learn and what you and I must encourage our children and our grandchildren to learn if we would be pleasing to God in this process of positive acquisition of education there are some things that we must avoid negatively 2nd Timothy 2 verse 16 but shun profane and vain babblings shun 
profane babblings. You see, it's either the word of God, which is worth listening to, and if it isn't the word of God, my friend, it is a vain and a profane babbling. People in the world who know not God and his word may think that their words are valuable, particularly university professors, but they're not really. What they think are words of wisdom, God calls vain and profane babblings shooting their mouth off about things that they don't really know much about although they may think that they're specialists you see my friend there is only one truth and the truth of God is found in this book and out in nature but anyone who claims anything to be a state of affairs in nature uh, which claim is at variance with what the word of God the Bible says about nature is a false claim no matter how learned the credentials of the person making that claim. See, the universities of the world, by and large, have departed from Jehovah. There is no truth in them. There is no merit in the fatuous relative theories of relativity which they continue to spout off in the realm of education, in the realm of natural science, in the realm of art, of philosophy, or whatever. We are to shun such profane babblings, such ungodly and empty and vacuum-like, meaningless, relatively unimportant babblings. Instead of that, we are to apply ourselves and study the Word of God, which is true, but again I say, not just to memorize the Bible, but to understand the relationship between each thing the Bible says and art, science, literature and everything else and you see this isn't the job for one lifetime this is the job for millennia this is the job for many generations finally all of this is drawn together at the end of the third chapter we're told in verse 13 of 2nd Timothy chapter 3 that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. By the way, it does not say what premillennialists gratuitously assume that it says. It does not say that evil men will become more and more prevalent. It does not say that evil men will become more and more numerous. Instead, it says that those men who are evil, such of them who remain evil and do not get converted, shall become worse and worse. And that's true. If a man is evil and doesn't become converted, he does become worse and worse without necessarily dragging others with him. But as men who are evil do become worse and worse in their profane and vain babblings, we are to stand fast as God's people. Verse 14, But continue thou, O Timothy, in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing from whom thou hast learned these things and from whom had Timothy learned these things from his grandmother Lois from his mother Eunice uh, from Paul himself and from other Christian associates as Timothy had received this ongoing Christian education verse 15 and that from a child thou hast known thou hast gotten to know the holy scriptures notice that it doesn't say you know Timothy your parents 
Your mother waited until you reached that magical age of discretion, seven. And then when you were seven, the age of discretion, she sent you off to Sunday school, but only because you of your only free will requested it. Otherwise, of course, you would have had perfect liberty to have stayed at home. No, this is the language of the modern evangelical, but it is not the language of the Word of God. The language of the Word of God is that Timothy, from a child, had made known unto him the Holy Scriptures. Now, that expression, from a child, is in Greek, apobrephus. It means literally, from babyhood. I don't want you to think that it was only after the Timothy ceased to be a baby and became a young child that he had the Holy Scriptures made known to him. That's not what it says. It says in the Greek, from babyhood, apobrephos, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. And this word, brephos, in the Greek, although it usually means baby, can also mean, and is frequently used in Greek to mean, an unborn fetus. So that the implication seems to be that it is from fetushood, probably, and from babyhood, very definitely, uh, that Timothy has had the Holy Scriptures made known to him. And if from fetushood, as seems probable, you can see how this fits in with what Paul has already been saying in the first chapter. I know, Timothy, that you have faith in you because this faith was in your mother and in your grandmother and for that matter, look at me, Paul. I, Paul, serve my God from my forefathers by way of the covenant. Do you see the implication of this? It means don't wait until your child hits this magical, unscriptural, modern evangelical unreformed age of seven before you start training your children in the ways of the Lord don't wait that long you've waited far too long your child may be irreclaimably lost if you wait until he or she is seven before you start training your child in the way of the Lord start training your child from the earliest possible time from babyhood, better still, from fetushood. You say, well, how can a child be trained before he's born? I don't see the problem. Do we not learn in the word of God that uh, when John the Baptist was six months old after his conception, still three months before his birth, when he was inside of his own mother, that when the Lord Jesus Christ, who'd only just been conceived nine months before his birth, inside of his mother Mary, approached unto the unborn John the Baptist, that John the Baptist, three months before his birth, recognized the presence of the Savior of the world and communicated this to his own mother and leaped up for joy in his mother's womb so that she knew that the one inside of her cousin Mary was the saviour of the world. And people tell me, how can a baby believe? I tell you, my friend, not believe, that an unborn fetus can believe. For this John the Baptist did so believe, did so recognize Jesus joyfully, and signal his recognition of Jesus to his own mother. 
For indeed, as Luke tells us, this John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. It wasn't that he grew up and only as an adult that he came to Christ and was then filled with the Spirit. No, no. From his very conception, before his very birth, this John the Baptist was already filled with the Holy Ghost and was recognizing the things of God. That was my desire for my own children before they were born. It has been ever since and God has not disappointed me. As at this time with my girls aged 14 and 11 respectively uh, it certainly seems to me that they have been filled with the Holy Spirit from before their birth and not just a once and for all filling but I urge them each day to yield anew and to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit and to learn more and more about God and more and more to be exposed to the Holy Scriptures which make rise unto salvation in Christian education. Well now, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. From childhood, from fetishhood, from infancy, O Timothy, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Notice what it is that Timothy has known from infancy. Not little truths about Jesus. Not been told stories about Jesus. But that he has known the Holy Scriptures. What are the Scriptures? The Scriptures are that which is written. You see the implication of that? What is it that you as a believing parent, that I am a believing parent, are to give our children when they are infants? The Bible is what we are to give them. The Holy Scriptures, not books about the Bible. Not our digested understanding and often misunderstanding of the Bible, but the Bible itself, the Holy Scriptures. We greatly underestimate the learning power of a child, especially a covenant child, to be educated and educated in the ways of the Lord. From babyhood, our children, like Timothy, need to have the Holy Scriptures made known to them. Why? Well, middle of verse 15, because these Holy Scriptures are able to make our children wise unto salvation. That is, are able to teach our children more and more wisdom about the way of salvation. And the word salvation here does not mean merely just being saved from their sins. It means the way of health. The way of health, the way of shalom, the way of shavu, the way of healthy, wealthy, prosperous, total, cosmic, full-orbed education in art, science and literature and everything else under the leadership of Jesus Christ and his scriptures as a Christian life and worldview. That's the way of salvation, the way of health. And of course, this is appropriated, end of verse 15, through faith which is in Christ Jesus, through the parents and through the children, more and more and increasingly trusting in Christ, putting their full weight upon Christ. And now these beautiful two verses, verses 16 and 17, which inspired the great Dutch theologian, philosopher, educationist, Dr. Hermann Barfink, to write many books on Christian education. All scripture has been breathed into it 
by God and all scripture is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction or education in righteousness so that the man of God may become perfect may become thoroughly equipped unto all good works I could speak for another two or three hours on these texts but I must quit but let me make one or two observations all scripture which is to be exposed to our children from their babyhood has been breathed into by the spirit of God there's not one verse in this book from Genesis to Revelation which is not full of the aroma of the sweet breath of God the Holy Spirit but now the purpose of scripture and of the reading of scripture to our infants and by our children is this it's profitable now we're living in a time when more and more evangelicals in their apostasy from the Bible are saying that Christians should not want to make a profit I disagree with that I think that if you really are a knowledgeable Christian you will want to make a profit you want to make a profit economically you want to make a profit educationally you want to make a profit politically Christians should be profit motivated people and the Bible says that the Bible scripture is profitable the reading and the study of the Bible will profit you it will promote you to gain more and more profit in what areas well in the area of doctrine that is systematic theology in the area of reproof that is rebuke scripture rebukes us scripture um, thrusts away from us our sins in the area of correction that is to say uh, in the area of being straightened out scripture will straighten you out it won't just rebuke you and tell you you're doing wrong but it will show you what the right road is and it will put you in the right road and correct you put you in the road of rectitude of correction of righteousness and the root meaning my friend of the word recto in correction and rectitude and righteousness and gerechtigheid is a reich or a kingdom or a reich of righteousness and righteousness is the keeping of the law of God the Ten Commandments righteousness is the opposite of sin righteousness exalts a nation for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction into the Ten Commandments for instruction or education into righteousness we and our children need to be educated into righteousness what is righteousness the keeping of the law of God our Savior is righteous because he kept the law of God his kingdom is a righteous kingdom because it's a kingdom where the law of God is the rule to which the citizens of that kingdom are brought to gladly submit themselves we are to be educated into righteousness you see then immediately the connection between the law of God and education why finally verse 17 so that so that the man of God so that the Christian man or woman from babyhood 
can be perfect. Uh, the word perfect there translates the Greek word artios, which really means can be furnished, can be made capable, can be made able. The reason why you and I are to be educated by Christianity under the law of God is so that we can become able people, people who do the things that God wants us to do as firemen, as strawberry growers, as preachers or whatever else we are. And if you and I are not yet as able as we should be, we need more education, more exposure to God's holy law. And bear in mind that the law of God is not just the Ten Commandments the way it was on Mount Sinai, but it's the Ten Commandments to be applied in your life and in my life today, where the rubber meets the road, in our daily tasks, in a similar way to the manner in which it was applied, these Ten Commandments, in the political, social, and economic total life of the Israelites in Old Testament times. And the net result of this is, end of verse 17, that we and our children, through this Christian education, become thoroughly furnished, that is, thoroughly equipped unto all good works. Unto all good works. Not just Bible training, so that we learn from our Bibles how to lead other people to Christ. No, that too. But in addition to that, thoroughly or thoroughly equipped unto all good works, unto the good work of soul winning, yes, but also unto the good work of art, science, microbiology, paleontology, astronomy, for every work that a man does is a good work, regardless in what area of the universe that work is performed, provided that work is performed. What is a good work? Catechism says, such works as are performed out of a Christ-loving heart, in agreement with the Ten Commandments, there's the rule of righteousness, out of gratitude to God for so great a salvation. Well, Let's open this up now for a few questions and then take our last pause. Yes, sir. Anyway, um, Moses didn't criticize his children, children all through the time. Um, in a way, well, in some ways, Christians were sort of really confused by the God of Christianity today. Through neglecting infant baptism, you mean? Oh yes, definitely, although I would like to say this, that the extremity of the punishment with which God punished Moses was probably more severe than uh, Baptist parents, uh, which do neglect the baptism of their children, which God orders as I read the Bible, would I think be subject to a lesser degree of punishment than Moses, because after all, Moses was a Presbyterian, if you want to put it that way. He knew the way of infant baptism very clearly, uh, and he deliberately compromised his view after marrying a Baptist wife, if you can put it that way. Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on Exodus 4, says that he thinks that when the first child came along, who was circumcised as, as a baby, uh, Moses 
the Presbyterian says to his Baptist wife who was a believer well now look I'm the head of the house and uh, the child needs to be circumcised in infancy the Presbyterian way his Baptist wife reluctantly agreed without much enthusiasm but says Calvin when the second child came along his wife said as much as this well now look here Moses I gave you your way when the first child was born and I didn't object too strongly to you having him circumcised as an infant but now that the second one's come along let him grow up to become an adult and then let him decide for himself whether he wants to be circumcised we would say today wants to be baptized or not but that this was not satisfactory to God why not? because in marriage truth is not a compromise between what the husband thinks and what the wife thinks truth is what the word of God declares and on any issue uh, on, on where a man and a wife differ with one another it is usually so that either the husband's right on that issue and the wife is wrong or the other way around truth is not a compromise between two different opinions truth is what God says as we rightly understand it but now notice that Moses was not just any old Presbyterian or any believer Moses was that Presbyterian whom God had chosen to lead two and a half million people out of slavery in Egypt in other words that which is a small degree of compromise in an ordinary Presbyterian or an ordinary Baptist becomes a very serious transgression in a leader who is to be picky unishly and finically exact and dedicated even on the small points this is one of the unjoys of being a preacher uh, I grew up in a situation once where anyone who wanted to play tennis could put on a pair of short white trousers and go play tennis but not the preacher the old ladies thought it was awful and terrible for a preacher to play tennis wearing a pair of short trousers well this is a double standard is it not but you see if you're a religious leader you are judged much more severely by what people rightly or wrongly regard as being shortcomings than they would ever judge themselves or any other person that were not a religious leader if he were to do the thing which they disapprove of in a leader and so one of the prices of leadership and especially of religious leadership is having to deny yourself the use of things which are not in themselves wrong uh, simply because you're living in a climate where a lot of people that are Christians for whatever reason regard that thing as wrong if you do it but perhaps not as much as if they do it well now for this reason God required a much greater degree of uh, efficiency and of obedience from Moses than he did from the other people because a people and a church will only rise to the level of its preacher a society and a civilization will only rise as a civilization with notable exceptions in the civilization but the civilization as such will only rise to the moral statue and the example of the leader it will not exceed him it's generally be below that and that's why as I say God was particularly severe and Calvin says the same in the correction which he meted out to Moses who knew better than God would be today now having said that I'd still like to say that I believe that God does withhold the blessing from Baptist parents 
who do not have their children baptized in infancy, which the word of God does declare God will give to parents who do have their children circumcised in infancy in the Old Testament, baptized in infancy in the New Testament. And therefore I would urge all Baptist parents to put this off no longer, but to apply the sign of the covenant to their children as soon as they can, uh, and in that way really to qualify to be able to expect God to bless them in regard of those children and not to withhold blessings from the parents or from the children. Of course, merely to have your children baptized in infancy without understanding it and for superstitious reasons uh, will not incur any blessing. And I'm sorry to say that there are many, many parents who rightly have their children baptized in infancy but for the dead wrong reasons. And God will not, of course, ever bless people who act out of superstition. All right. Any further questions? No? Well, then, let's take a five minutes or so break. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.